I'm going to go ahead and say um, it's an honor to be here. Thank you for, uh, for the chance to speak to you. Um, I'll go ahead and confess once I realize the schedule. Uh, on the schedule, I can see that Landon Saunders is speaking over at the chapel right now. <laughs> so, and I'm hardly well known. So, uh, but I'm, I've got pride. So I brought $20 bills. Just if anybody's planning on leaving, you know, see me. So we're good, okay? Um, anyway, now seriously, um, a special thanks to Steve Puckett, the guy sitting down right now, who was my college roommate at Freed Hardeman. He's married to my lifelong best friend, uh, Cindy, from the little town in Alabama where I grew up. And another thanks to Walter Pierce. So Steve and Walter and I have been roommates this week uh, here at Treasure. And then last night, I had the very special pleasure of Getting to know uh, an introductory meal with Dr. James Thomas, who's a professor here at Pepperdine. Dr. Thomas just happens to have been a classmate of Paula Hearing, the victim in this story, back in Nashville in 1963. So uh, thanks you all for being here. Um, I promise you whatever you're expecting to hear today, you probably will get more than that. So, <laughs> so what I'm going to do is um, I'm just going to roll through some slides. I'm going to ask some questions. Um, this is interactive. And um, there'll be images here I don't think you've seen, but we'll, we'll get started here. I thought I might ask what era you think we're living in. Uh, on Tuesday night, I heard Randy Harris talk about the postmodern era. Some people might describe uh, the current era as the Facebook era. Makes sense to me. Uh, the Internet age, that makes sense because half of humanity is on the Internet right now. 25 years ago, not so many. But I'm going to offer you one other answer, and that would be, I think we're probably, possibly in the true crime era in American history. And it's not just me that's saying that. Um, there, I recently read where someone said, there's never been a time in American history where more writers, more journalists, more amateur detectives are looking at old cases, cold cases, historical wrongs, hoping to find some way to help law enforcement to do the right thing if they didn't have the time. So um, if you recognize any of these names, I bet you have friends who are binge watchers of some of these shows or podcast listeners. Uh, they're all over. The one in the middle, the Golden State Killer. People were looking for him for decades. This is pretty recent news. So since this is a university environment, I'm going to start with a pop quiz. I think that's just fair. <laughs> And uh, I didn't run this by Dr. Thomas, but uh, I think we'll go with this. So here's my question. <coughs> There's a book at stake. You get a free book here. Yeah. Unsolved murders. I want to know how many unsolved murders you think there were in 2017. That's the year I have data for. 2017. How many? Over 15,000. Over 15,000. I got a hint here, but the hint's wrong. <laughs> Anybody less than 15,000? 5,000. 5, got an 800. Here's the answer. 6,107. So this one goes with the stolen back here. That's if you have data for 2017, that's a lot of unsolved murders, folks. Question number two, how many since 1980? Wow. Anybody want to make a guess since 1980? Got another book at stake. 55,000. I got 50, 45. Anybody shooting more? 35,000. It's higher. I'm going to say 68,000. It's higher. 160. It's higher. 75. 
Unsolved murders. So let me give this to you in practical terms. That no account brother-in-law you've got, you could murder him, and you got a 40% chance of getting away with it. <laughs> but the corollary is also true. He's got a 40% chance of getting away with killing you. Uh, but this is sobering, folks, because this is not just the victims. This is their families, their loved ones, the community they are in. There are over, there's, I mean, it's, it's astounding to me. So let's go back to the time of King David. How many unsolved murders then, a thousand years before the Christ? The answer is I have no clue. Yeah. <laughs> but take a look at Deuteronomy 21, 1 through 9. There really was a process for what the community and the priests were supposed to do with unsolved murders. It's there. It's really interesting reading. I recommend it again, Deuteronomy 21. So now I'm going to switch gears and I'll get to the topic of the book here. Uh, these are just names of references for Nashville, you know, the city of Nashville. And if you don't know the city of Nashville, last week we had the NFL draft was there. Over somewhere between 450 and 500,000 people came to town for the NFL draft. We get over a million a month that come to Nashville. That's a lot of people. The, um, that's, in fact, it's well over a million a month. The uh, economic impact's about $7 billion a year currently running. But Nashville was formed when the city and the county merged together. They consolidated. And some smart people put this plan together. It really did, uh, was born, stroke of midnight, April Fool's Day, 1963. That same model has been used in about 18 other large metro consolidations. Nashville was first. This guy is the visionary. He was the first mayor of Nashville. A brilliant man uh, with lots of other issues going on in his life. He graduated high school at age 16, passed the bar at 18. His grandson is the current mayor of Nashville, Clifton David Briley. So once the city was formed, they took down the signs, the city signs, they put the new stickers on the police cars. On the right-hand side of that door in the dark outfit is Chief Hubert Kemp. He was the first chief of police in Nashville, Tennessee. Metro. <clears throat> so I'm going to move forward in time to 1964. But think about what happened in 1963. The summer of 1963, Medgar Evers, if that name means anything to you, he's assassinated in Jackson, Mississippi in June 1963, the civil rights worker. In August of 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. is giving his speech, the I Have a Dream speech in Washington at the Lincoln Monument. In the fall of 1963, you've got President Kennedy, the Dealey Plaza episode there. The Warren Commission gets formed a week later. So there's a lot of history in there. I just want to let you know we're moving forward a little bit in time, but there's a lot of history. You recognize these folks, right? Yeah. All right, so they first came to America. Their first American tour was in February of 1964. They were on the Ed Sullivan Show a couple of Sunday nights. We didn't get to see the Ed Sullivan Show a lot at our house because we were always going to the little Church of Christ where we were, and we couldn't get home in time. So, uh, But anyway... On February 22nd, these guys leave America, they go back to London, and this is the night that's really the basis of this whole book. February 22nd on Saturday night, I don't know how many channels you have on your televisions now, probably a few hundred. Back then you had three, literally three. These are the three. Everything's in black and white. The C stands for color. That's the only show that was in color at the time. <clears throat> there are a lot of things you could do in Nashville on a Saturday night. You could go to the Grand Ole Opry, and this is a photo from roughly in the 60s. You could also go to a place called 
Printer's Alley. Printer's Alley, uh, I would describe it as Las Vegas in the South because anything you wanted to do in Printer's Alley, you could do, and I mean anything you can imagine you could do. All kinds of illegal activities, uh, sex, drug, rock and roll, they're all there. If you take a close look, what you're really looking at is a raid because these are all police cars lined up with the little bubbles from like the Andy Griffith show. Uh, and the raid is because they're actually going after all the owners of the clubs, but what a lot of citizens soon realize, the owners of the clubs have been paying off law enforcement to keep this business going. <clears throat> James Hoffa, R stands for Riddle, no kidding. Uh, James Riddle Hoffa was a frequent flyer in Printer's Alley. So was this man, little Mickey Cohen, the mobster, and we're not far from his town, Los Angeles. If you ever saw the movie LA Confidential or read the book, a lot of that is about little Mickey Cohen. So the reason I'm showing this, there's a connection between Cohen the mobster and the Nashville corruption. Uh, one of the guns, a 38 Special that was used in a, a mob hit came from a police sergeant in Nashville. The police sergeant had a really interesting sideline. When he wasn't working, well actually even when he was working for the Metro Police Department, he was running uh, hookers, prostitutes, out of his squad car. He would just deliver them to wherever you were staying, and it, uh, it was, made him some nice money. So Life Magazine decided that instead of Athens of the South or some of these other names, the buckle of the Bible Belt, that Nashville would become, was already showing signs of being the most corrupt city in America. If you heard Randy Harris on Tuesday night, you heard him talk about how good and evil are in all of us. So this is a city, I think, that had both good and evil. A church on every corner, 2,000 churches, bless you, 2,000 churches within the Middle Tennessee area. But what was going on Saturday night was something different on Sunday morning. In fact, this was a quote from uh, one of the stories. This is about a man named R.B. Owen. R.B. Owen is, at the time, he was a, uh, a lieutenant in the Metro Police Force. We'll come back to R.B. Owen. So I'm going to switch gears and take you to Mahia, Texas. If you don't know where Mahia, Texas is, we'll, you'll find out in just a moment. This is a little family from Mahia, Texas that's just east of Waco. Uh, the man, the father, husband here is a guy named Wilmer, W-I-L-M-E-R Herring, Wilmer Herring. His wife is Eva Jo, the little girl standing in front of them who looks not so happy to have this outfit on, is Paula Herring. <clears throat> Mahia, Texas, since we're on uh, mysterious deaths and unsolved murders, you see Mahia on the bottom right-hand side of this photograph, right? So if you don't know the name Nikki Hart, she, in 1985, she was working for Jim's Crispy Fried Chicken and also going to high school in Mahia. She flunked out of, uh, yeah, she flunked out of the ninth grade, dropped out of the 10th grade, married a guy at Jim's Crispy Fried Chicken, but you would know her now as Anna Nicole Smith. So, again, back from Mahia, Texas. So the Herring family, they decide to leave Texas. They come to Tennessee. Joe Herring in the upper right corner there becomes a public nurse. Like the Andy Griffith Show where you have the county nurse, uh, Nurse Peggy. Joe Herring was one of those nurses in Sumner County. Her husband, who was a Baylor graduate, also a first lieutenant in the U.S. Army Air Forces, he was working for an insurance company. So you've got Paula at the top, and then this is Alan, Paula's six-year-old little brother. This is Alan Herring in the arms of his dad in 1960. And the reason that's significant, also in 1960, a tragedy struck this little family. This is the Knoll Hotel in downtown Nashville, the back of it. 
the back of this hotel hits Printer's Alley, which is not a very big uh, alley. But Mr. Herring was found here in one of the rooms, um, lying fully clothed on top of a bed, and next to him on a nightstand was a bottle of rat poison. And the medical examiner said Mr. Herring had ingested uh, a bottle of rat poison, and the key ingredient was arsenic or warfarin. So that's what took his life, according to the medical examiner. Some other things that were going on in this time period just after that, if you recognize the Boston Strangler, that's who this is. But the reason his photograph is here is because while Albert DeSalvo was doing his misdeeds in New England, the city of Nashville, the south part of Nashville, was being plagued by a prowler rapist. And the law enforcement folks were pretty confident at some point someone was going to fight back and it might take their life. Well. On the night of February 22nd, um, Mrs. Herring, the widow, comes home from a dinner date with some friends. She leaves Paula and uh, Paul and Alan, the little brother, she leaves them at home. Paula's doing a book report. So Mrs. Herring gets home somewhere, as the story goes, after 11 o'clock that night. They come to Timberhill Drive. If you've ever heard of uh, the Creve Hall Church of Christ, you could throw a rock from the parking lot of the Creve Hall Church of Christ in Nashville and hit the backyard of this location. It looks much like it does today. The retaining wall is still there. Trees are grown up, uh, but the home is still there. So Eva Jo Herring comes home that night. She finds her daughter in the floor. But the more miraculous thing, I guess, is the miracles are possible. Alan Herring walks out of his bedroom, and he slept through his sister's murder. So again, this is um, late at night. The police don't know what to think about it. But this story makes its way all over the South. It's front page news in Knoxville and some other cities. And it also spawns Metro Nashville's first urban legend. Lock the doors, babysitters, kids, or you'll end up like Paula Herring. So Paula Herring takes her grief, uh, but also uh, quite a bit of athletic ability. She becomes Captain of the girls' basketball team. She's on the front right, number 54. Might be hard to see. She helped start the first snow skiing club at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. This is Paula Herring here. It looks like she's kicking the guy in front of her. She might have been because the guy in front of her is president of the snow skiing club, and they were dating at the time that Paula was murdered. His name's Walter Pascal. Paula was also hoping to join Alpha Omicron Pi. I mean, she had lots of plans. But back in Nashville, the uh, investigators were stymied. They couldn't find the person responsible, <clears throat> but they get some help. They end up settling on the son of an East Tennessee judge, uh, the son of an East Tennessee legislator, a guy named John Randolph Clark. He's 39 years old at the time of this photograph. He looks a lot older, uh, but he's from a prominent family. And so the authorities eventually decide they have enough evidence to arrest Mr. Clark. He's indicted. And this story, the babysitter story, and the fact that a judge's son is involved in it starts making national news in some of these, I'm not sure what to, just how to describe these, but true detective style magazines. I don't think they're in play anymore because I guess the folks that really wanted to read this can find what they need on the internet these days. But um, her story was front page, Phantom Intruder Slays Tennessee Co-Ed, they're talking about Paula Herring. Humpty Dumpty Murder on Timber Hill Drive, they're talking about Paula Herring. Humpty Dumpty Murder because what was missing, two things were missing on the night of the murder from the home. The gun that was used to kill her and also a paperback book that Paula was using uh, and the paperback book was All the King's Men. 
by Robert Penn Warren. They did find them both later. So this trial uh, that was planning to happen in September of 1964, it moves from Nashville, Tennessee to Jackson, Tennessee. Um, one of the newspapers in Jackson said, this is the sensation of the South. And so I'm going to pause there for a little question and ask, does anyone know where this Ford Bronco is? Anyone seen this Ford Bronco? <laughs> That's Los Angeles. Um, this is next month to be the 25th anniversary. I know you probably think I'm making light of this, but there's actually two points I want to make. Uh, one of them is, do you remember how long O.J. Simpson's trial lasted? It started in January of 1995, and in Judge Lancito's court, it lasted until October. That's a long time. Of course, that was the trial of the century, right? Um, the trial of John Randolph Clark was not quite so long. But the other thing I'm going to ask you, does anybody truly, does anybody know where this white Ford Bronco is? I've got another book at stake if you do. Where it is currently? Or well, currently, right now. Smithsonian. Smithsonian? Smithsonian, no. <laughs> but you're close. You're so close you might get this, this one. <laughs> this white Ford Bronco is now in the Alcatraz East Crime Museum. And you're probably thinking, Atlantic City, you're probably thinking somewhere in New Jersey, but where the crime museum is, is actually in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, near Gatlinburg and the Smoky Mountains. <laughs> <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. So, we're going to move along here. So the trial of John Randolph Clark, the judge's son, lasted for five days. The judge in the trial said he had five days to do it. They started on Monday morning, and by golly, they were done Friday afternoon. The jury got the case at noon. Three things basically they used to convict Clark. Fiber evidence, uh, fibers from Paula Hearing's clothing to Clark's clothing, a matching bullet that they found on a sidewalk where someone had seen Clark fire a gun, and it matched the two bullets that were found in the house. The picture of the detective looking down at the carpet, that's the other two bullets. So Mr. Clark gets the nod. He's convicted. First degree murder, 30 years. He goes to this prison. This is a pretty famous prison. If you don't recognize this, this is the prison in Tennessee, uh, just outside of town. It's where the Green Mile, the movie The Green Mile was filmed with Tom Hanks. It's also the same movie where uh, The Last Castle with Robert Redford and James Gandolfini was filmed. It's, it's not used as a prison anymore. So Mr. Clark goes to prison. He proclaimed his innocence the whole time. In fact, he walked around for two years after his conviction. I'll say that again. He walked around free for two years after his conviction before ever having to step into prison. That's unheard of. Uh, but he had the influence to pull that off. He also walked around offering a $5,000 cash reward for anyone who could help find the person who really did kill Paul Harry. So let me back up. So, but in 1975, the governor at the time, who later goes to prison for selling pardons, essentially, he commutes Clark's sentence from 30 years down to 25 in parole board math. Mr. Clark walked out of prison after nine years, and he became a free will Baptist minister. In October of 1986, he dropped out of a heart attack. He was mowing his lawn. He was on his way to Florida, where he was going to be the chaplain during the winter session at an RV park. <coughs> so you're probably wondering <coughs> what happened to the little boy, Alan Harry. So I'm going to tell you the Alan Herring story. So Alan and his mother, after Clark is convicted, they go back to Texas. They go to Waco, Texas this time, not Mahia. 
Eva Jo Herring's parents live in Waco, Texas. And so Eva Jo and her son Alan, they move in two doors down the street from her parents. She gets a job at uh, Hillcrest Hospital. When Hillcrest Hospital was located in the kind of the downtown inner area of Waco, it's now since been moved outside of the city. And I asked Alan Herring how life was <clears throat> with his mother. He said, well, after all that, I couldn't get her to stop smoking, couldn't get her to stop drinking, couldn't get her to stop taking pain pills. So I put this little note up here to show you Alan Herring's life. In 1960, when Alan Herring is two, he loses his father. In 1964, he's six, he loses his sister. In 1976, when Alan is 18, he's just graduated high school from Mahia, I'm sorry, <clears throat> in Waco. He moves out of his mother's house in with some friends. His mother is getting ready to go to a party. She doesn't show up at the party. They come to her house and they find her slumped against the wall, dead. The cause of death was probable heart attack, was what was said. So he's lost, <coughs> excuse me, he's lost his family, essentially, uh, at 2, 6, and 18. When he's 28, John Randolph Clark is gone, too. So basically all connections to uh, his sister's murder are out of his life. So you would think, and a lot of people in Nashville just assume this is the end of the story, nothing else. But what happens next, 33 years after the murder, a friend of mine asked me to meet him for lunch. So I go and meet him for lunch, and he tells me that he has read a book based on a bunch of Los Angeles celebrity murders, and it's called Fallen Angels. <clears throat> and he thinks that Nashville has enough stories to support such a work. And I'm thinking, possibly, um, but he's telling me, you know, we'll write five, six pages, I need help researching this project, and I'm thinking, I'm not so sure about this, because this would mean you're just going to go back and write up these stories, the worst moments in some people's lives, and we're going to sell this? So <clears throat> I was on the verge of dropping out, but I thought, well, let's see what happens. So <clears throat> I ended up going to a place called the Metro Archives in Nashville. <coughs> this is a recreation of that event 20 years later. I walked in and I, <clears throat> I said, um, I don't know what I'm looking for, but what records might you have? And they said, well, we've just gotten the records from the first chief of police in Nashville, Tennessee, Hubert Kemp. <clears throat> we haven't looked at them. Would you like to look at them? <laughs> like, why would, you, why would you even let me do that? So, uh, excuse me one moment. <clears throat> so, why would you let me do that? I didn't ask that out loud, but they did. And so I discover in this um, box number three, a file. All these records were just um, letters between Metro heads of government, their attendance reports. But in one of the boxes, box number three, here's a file. Inside the file, some brutal photographs of the Paul Herring crime scene. Um, a lot of other things, <clears throat> including a letter from J. Edgar Hoover uh, talking about the evidence, how they would help the chief of police with it, <clears throat> including a letter that Mrs. Herring wrote lauding the work of the, uh, the investigators in convicting John Randolph Clark, including a letter from Mayor Beverly Briley explaining his presence in the neighborhood, the night of the murder, the time of the murder. And I'm thinking, it's pretty interesting information. <clears throat> so I had the brilliant idea of 
contacting Alan Herring. Not so brilliant, really, but I just thought I'll just try to reach out and see what has happened. What's Alan's life been like since 1964? So I found Alan Herring. He had two questions for me, and I had a question for him. You can see Alan's two at the top. My question for Alan, this is September 1997. My question for Alan was one you can figure out. I just asked him, what do you remember about the night of your sister's murder? You're on record as having slept through it. What do you remember? He said, nothing. He said, I lost that weekend in my memory. I don't have it. <clears throat> and so he said, but I've always wanted to know. He was intrigued that someone was calling. And I told him about the 40 stories private. He said, I always wanted to know why this Clark fella didn't kill me too. And he asked me about his father's suicide note. I didn't know what he was talking about. So <clears throat> that basically began a 20-year journey. You can see the dates in the bottom here. And uh, it went from, yeah, September to September, uh, 20 years. So I started <clears throat> just doing research. I made my way to a cemetery in Mahia, Texas. This is it. I found the grave sites of Paula's father and mother. And then I made my way to a cemetery in Gallatin, Tennessee, where Paula Herring is buried. <coughs> Excuse me. So you can see there's something missing up here, and that's the headstone for Paula Herring. <coughs> and you can see it, I don't know if you can see it that well, at the bottom here is a foot marker. And that's the only thing there marking her grave. So when I asked about it, I was told, well, her mother bought two graves within hours of Paula's death. One of them has Paula's remains, the other is empty. So I thought, hmm, wonder what that means. So I started then chasing down lawyers who had been involved in the case. <clears throat> That's John Randolph Clark in the middle. His lead defense attorney is Charles Galbraith, the guy in the horn room glasses. I went to see Charles Galbraith, told him what I was doing. He said, look, he said, I only had two clients that I knew were innocent in my entire career. And he said, I don't mean the legal term. He said, I mean, didn't do what they were convicted of. He said, John Randolph Clark was one of those. A pharmacist was the other. So I went to see the prosecution side of this story. The lawyers, the man on the left, the man on the right, are both the DAs from, the assistant DAs from Nashville at the time. The man in the, he looks, it's a camera angle, but the, the short man in the glasses here, these two guys are from the Jackson, Tennessee District Attorney's <laughs> Office. <clears throat> if you know the name uh, Al Gore, former Vice President Al Gore, that's his uncle, the short guy there, Whit LaFon. So these guys were involved in prosecuting John Randolph Clark for the murder. So I go back to Alan Herring and I tell him, there's some really interesting things that went on in your sister's murder. And at that point, I'd also found the criminal trial transcript for this case, over a thousand pages. So I came back to Alan and I said, I'm not sure Clark did this. And Alan said, look, if it turns out somebody else did, let's reopen the case. I'll lead the charge. I said, okay, you're on. So <clears throat> I stayed on this off and on for a while, tracking down people. I eventually caught up with a man named Richard Walter. Richard Walter is the world's living Sherlock Holmes. He is, as some would, some would describe, the sharpest mind on murder in the world. He lives in Pennsylvania. I had already been to see, uh, in fact, here's another Los Angeles connection. Remember the name Henry Lee? the forensic expert in the O.J. Simpson trial. I had already been to see Henry Lee's group in Connecticut trying to get help uh, understanding what had happened to Paul Herring. So when I told Richard Walter where I had been, he said, look, I'll help you. Uh, no charge. 
So I said, okay, cool. So, um, so I told him about the story. And the first thing he said to me was, uh, he says, look, you're probably making the classic mistake that detectives make. I said, well, that's okay. I'm not a detective, but what's the mistake? He said, the classic mistake is when any new lead comes in, investigators just go further and further away from the central issue. He says, you don't see the central issue, do you, Michael? I said, no, sir, I don't. He said, the central issue is pretty simple. Here's a woman, a young woman, fully clothed, murdered in her own home. The room is hardly disturbed. She hasn't been sexually assaulted, according to what you're telling me. He said, if all this is true, then what did the sex fiend who committed this crime, what did he get out of this? I said, I can't answer that. He said, that is the answer, because a sex fiend didn't commit this crime. He said, it is quite likely that what Paula Herring knew and what she was going to tell is why she was murdered. He said, we would describe this as a purposeful murder. And I said, okay. <clears throat> so I started then starting, I went and started my research again, but I started the closest people who knew Paula Herring. This is her mother on the left in the hands up pose. Uh, she had different looks through her life. The woman on the right is Evelyn Johnson. And this photograph was taken in one of two locations. Uh, so these two ladies were nurses at Vanderbilt University Hospital. They also happened to have gotten to know some really powerful people in Nashville, including mayor, the sheriff, uh, some detectives. And some of these guys would come in and they would dry out at Vanderbilt. Dry out meaning they were completely addicted to alcohol, drugs, and everything else. So I started looking at this story, and then uh, Evelyn Johnson confessed to me that they didn't get home after 11 o'clock on the night of the murder. They were home a lot, a lot earlier. So I went back to Alan and I said, the timeline's wrong. Um, this story is all messed up. This looks like an inside job. I'm not saying your mother murdered anybody. She may have been blackmailed, but this is an inside deal. So Alan and I, who had been on regular communications, he'd been to Nashville, we'd had dinner together. We started being in a lot less frequent communication. I mean, down to happy birthday, how's the weather, traveling anywhere, you know, three of those a year, and that was about it. So, <clears throat> Along around 2012, I tracked down all the people who were in the house on the night of the murder. And I mean the people who were not the police investigators. I mean the people involved in the murder. So in 2012, I'll ask a question of you that I had to ask of myself. I'm thinking, well, I know what happened in this story now. And I've messed up. I'm not a detective. Now I know, so what am I supposed to do about this? So I thought, if I go public with what I know, I'm probably going to get killed. Uh, because it turns out a lot of powerful people were involved in this story. And if I don't get killed, at least uh, my wife will probably leave me because she's not going to be real thrilled with this. So I thought, well, I could go to the district attorney's office, but I wasn't in the house that night. So I did what I thought was the best thing. I hired an attorney, had the attorney write a, an agreement between Alan Herring and Michael Bishop. And the agreement basically said, I'll fly you to Nashville, round trip. I'll set you up in a hotel a couple of nights. I'll set you up with meetings with people you've never seen and you haven't seen in 50 years. 
and I'll give you all the things that I have that will help you reopen this case and go forward. In exchange, you can't pursue me for any invasion of privacy because I haven't been looking at you in your life, but you also can't force me to do anything with what I know. So he had that agreement for about three weeks, and after three weeks, he came back and he said no. He said no, he didn't want to sign it. So I'm, now I'm thinking, well, I've only been doing this for 15 years. What am I supposed to do now? And I, <clears throat> I didn't see a way to actually tell the story, maybe fictionalize it, move it to Birmingham or some other city. But then I just decided I would just start writing up the little interviews that I had done. So I was, each interview would become a few pages in a book, <clears throat> and they're in the book. Um, I ended up hiring another attorney after I had 400 pages put together. I hired another attorney to vet the manuscript to see, can this even be published? And the answer came back, uh, yes. So I changed a couple of names. <clears throat> and. Uh, this wonderful person back here. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. <clears throat> I have bad allergies and this is the right season for me. So, <clears throat> um, I ended up taking that manuscript, um, changing a few things in it, but not many. <laughs> And the, uh, the lawyers said, you know, there'll be some literary agents in New York that'll want this. So I sent it, they did, publishing house picked it up. And then, um, so from 2012 to 2017, um, I ended up um, working with the publishing house, the editors and everything. In May of 2017, the reason I'm going through this, in May of 2017, I ended up having a meeting with the publishing house editor, their legal counsel, general counsel, and the request I had was, before this story ever goes public, I'd like Alan to see it. I think it's the right thing to do. And uh, they agreed, but they had different reasons. Their reasons were they wanted to know what he would say about it. So <clears throat> I wrote a two-page letter to Alan, and that letter said, um, you know, I bet you didn't see this coming. I didn't see it coming. But the reason it's here is because it's the right thing to do. It, um, it'll set the record straight for people who lived through this in Nashville, the people who convicted uh, an innocent man. So the other things I told him was, <clears throat> there's nothing really in this book that I've uh, written about your private life. I hope you'll notice that. But I also said, to the extent you're looking for life-changing information, it's here in these pages. So uh, the request was take three weeks, um, read through the manuscript. If you have any errors, you see issues, problems, come back. Three weeks went by and he came back with zero. So that doesn't mean that he enjoyed what he read, doesn't mean he was ready to process you know, the world flipping upside down 50 years later, but he did read it. So the book was released in um, September <clears throat> of 2017. The other thing that happened in May of 2017, I finally got around to telling my mother and my siblings and their family what I had been doing for the previous 20 years. I'd never told them. <laughs> Serious. So one of the things that was discovered in this little uh, adventure was, this is Alan's mother on the right. She was the first suspect in this story. 
and uh, it's not a it's not a pretty story. Uh, one of the but, but she walked away from that. Uh, they brought her in just hours after Paula's murder, and she was back home before daybreak because, uh, kind of like Bathsheba, she knew how to call King David, and King David was the mayor of the city who was part of this little club. So she got an alibi. She walked away. <clears throat> I talked to um, a very well-known uh, forensic psychiatrist about what has to happen in your life to get to a place where you can you know, walk away from taking the life of your family member? What has to happen, what are the odds that you can walk in and find a dead family member once and three and a half years later find another one? What are the odds? And this guy said, <clears throat> um, not sure what happened. we're at the end, uh, close. He said, look, it really, it will really come down to trauma. He said, if you start looking at the mother's life, he said, I promise you, you're going to find trauma somewhere in there because trauma and addiction go together like peanut butter and jelly. He said, it's better than peanut butter and chocolate. Um, and I said, well, I get that. I said, that's, you know, the old trifecta of um, sin and secrets and shame. It's a loser, a losing trifecta. He said, that's it. He said, you'll just have to figure out um, where the trauma came from. You might not ever. But if you read the book, you will find out where the trauma came from. It turned out that um, Paula's mother came from a family who was well-known in the community for running their own prostitution business. And the father was actually uh, pimping out the wife may have done that to the two daughters. Um, by the time they got to Waco, Texas, apparently they weren't in the business anymore. But I, I cannot imagine um, the trauma from that, um, the abuse, the, I guess, that's how you separate your, uh, your life. Uh, you, you, I don't know the words. I don't have the words to describe that. So at the bottom of this um, story, it's not good. Um, <clears throat> I truly, I think my machine finally dropped out. I really only had two other slides. One slide was, um, at the end of this story, uh, this book is now in its fourth printing. I think the fifth printing will uh, come soon. A couple of the detectives on the case, uh, one of them called me to say, you know what you've written here is true, don't you? I said, well, yes. I said, but it's nice to have your confirmation. The other guy uh, was R.B. Owen. R.B. Owen was running the property room in Nashville at the time of Paula Herring's murder. He remembered, and I met with him um, last year, uh, he remembered, he's 90 plus, he remembered the day and the time of day when he saw a couple of fellow officers moving fibers around. So at the end of this <clears throat> story, it really came down to a small group of powerful people who wanted to protect their careers, wanted to save marriages, I guess, to the extent you can describe them as marriages. And they wanted this story to just get out of town, uh, and it did. Uh, Alan Herring is living uh, a good life. I don't uh, typically share where he is, what he's doing, but by all accounts, he's, he's doing well. I don't know how. He lives on the western part of the United States. Um, he graduated high school, like I said, in Waco. He did some college work. He works for a university at this point. Not a professor, but he helps manage a department. So um, 
you know, I'm just kind of looking at the clock here. I'm happy to answer any questions you might have, uh, if there are any questions. Yes. I'm just curious, um, the gentleman who the man is in prison, is he still there? Thank you for reminding me to tell you that story. <clears throat> so, Mr. Clark, he he died in 1986, so he's not still there. But I went to see his family in East Tennessee to tell them what I had uncovered, that he truly was innocent of this crime. And, and the, the youngest brother of the family said, we never thought he committed a murder. We knew he was a philanderer, and his wife apparently loved him and put up with it anyway. Uh, he said, but we never had any any notion that our, um, that our brother had done that. And I'm going to answer a question that's not asked because you wouldn't know to ask it. So Alan and Paula Herring still have an aunt living in Texas. So this is Wilmer Herring's youngest sister. Wilmer was the oldest of six. The youngest sister is still living in Texas. I went to see her before the, uh, the book came out. And, uh, and my reason for going was to say, you know that, um, that suicide that took place in 1960? The experts say, not a chance. There's no chance that a woman would have found two dead family members in, in any kind of calculation. And she had apparently, not apparently, she took with her, she, Eva Jo Herring took with her a younger nurse to discover her husband at the Knoll Hotel. And she took with her Evelyn Johnson to discover uh, Paula when she was dead. So part of what Paula Herring's plan was, was to avenge her father's death because Paula apparently knew what had happened in 1960 when she was 15 years old. So, um, again, not, not a pleasant story, but thank you for asking. Oh, I'm sorry, and Aunt Rita, that's her name, when I told her this, she said, nobody here thought he'd committed suicide. Said, he was Church of Christ, our whole family was. He would, he would, I'm serious, he would never do that. I said, okay, I get that. He said, we always thought his, his wife did him in. We just couldn't prove it or do anything about it. Okay, so, yes, ma'am, you had one? So, other than the facts that you bring out in the book, was anybody ever held accountable for this? Um, somewhere in heaven or wherever they are, I suppose. Okay. But, <clears throat> no. but not in the legal system? That, not in the legal system. In fact, that was one of the things I said to Alan was, <clears throat> given who's involved in this story, they're never going to reopen the case. Because what you find when you read the book is the assistant DA who's prosecuting John Randolph Clark in this five-day trial, he's also having an affair. He's married. He's having the affair with Eva Jo Herring. And, I mean, he's buying her negligee, uh, lingerie, whatever you want to call it. I mean, it was, she, was, she was the most powerful woman in Nashville, in my uh, opinion, at that time. But, yeah, it was never going to be reopened. Yes, ma'am. The mom took, uh, so Eva Jo Herring and Peters took her husband's life because it looks like he was on his way out. He was tired of putting up with the lifestyle that Jo Herring really liked, and she liked money, and she liked drugs, and she liked sex, and, and she was, I think, on the verge of starting up her own prostitution business. Um, and so he got out in 1960, she was planning to get out, and I think she took his life for the $10,000 that she used to buy the home where Paul was here. And then the little girl realized that her mom killed her dad, so she killed herself? Mm -hmm. No, according to, the, according to the aunt, Paula knew that her mom had taken her oh, dad's life. Okay. 
weekend. So she had already announced to her mother when she flew home that weekend that she was going to go to law school. And her mother, I think, could see the handwriting on the wall. Mm -hmm. Yes, ma'am. I missed the connection of Nicole Smith. <coughs> uh, O.J. Simpson. Is that, oh, I'm oh, sorry. Anna, Anna Nicole Smith. Anna Nicole Smith. Uh, Nicole Brown. Um, so Anna Nicole Smith also grew up in Mahia, Texas. <coughs> Spent time there. She um, she arrived there. A troubled family as well. Uh, I was just saying, I think I was trying to say that if you don't know Mahia, Texas, you will after this. <laughs> um, so she arrived there under the name of Nikki Hart in 1985, flunked out of the ninth grade, dropped out of the 10th grade, married a fried cook. Jim's crispy fried chicken is still there, chicken food. <laughs> but she, um, <clears throat> she went on to become Anna Nicole Smith. Can I ask you one more question? Sure. You said you weren't a detective. What are your credentials? I mean, I admire um, your tenacity I, I, for following the whole um, thing that long. I'm not sure I have any credentials. I can tell you what I do for a living now. I work in the learning business for healthcare. Uh -huh. Oddly enough, I work with doctors and nurses, training them, a uh, small publicly traded company. I'll tell you something about myself that uh, you won't know from reading the book. So I was born in Alabama, Gaston, Alabama. My grandparents were, on my father's side, were Alabama sharecroppers. Didn't own a home, didn't own a car, no driver's license. My dad and my uncle helped build them a house in infamous Scottsboro, Alabama. <laughs> they, they uh, and my parents, neither of my parents graduated high school. They didn't, they didn't get close, but they were autodidacts. They were self-taught. So I had the good fortune of growing up in a house full of books. So anytime you were working or doing church work, you had a book waiting for you. Finish a book, you got another book. So um, wherever the tenacity came from, there was also one other thing. Once I realized something's wrong here, I thought, I don't know that I want to meet this girl in heaven if I didn't finish what I started here. So that was it. Uh, it is 1030. Thank you so much for being here. Happy to.